Welcome to First Baptist Church, Sun City West. We thank you for joining us today as we focus again on the third of our series of seven messages on the churches of Revelation. Today we talk about the church at Pergamon and it is entitled The Church Beside Satan's Throne. Chapter 2, Revelation, starting with verse 12. The angel to the church in Pergamon write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You do not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nonetheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who behold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to come and be a part of this message, to understand to the best of our ability and apply to our life, both individually and also as this church. I pray, God, we'll listen to your spirit and be sensitive. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. History records that Pergamum was an illustrious city of Myoasia, given over to almost entirely to wealth and to fashion. The city was also the headquarters for the emperor worship. It was a chief city of the province and was located in it was the concilia, which had in charge all the matters of state religion and incense offering before the image of the ruler himself, the emperor. That city had always been very close to the Roman Empire, loyal to Rome. And so it was only natural that that city would be antagonistic and also persecuting the Christians who lived in that community. The reference to Satan's throne alludes to the fact that Pergamon was the headquarters for the emperor cult. The city of Pergamon was built on a hill that was about a thousand feet above the surrounding countryside. It was a natural fortress. It was a sophisticated city. It was the center of Greek culture and education. It had a library with over 200,000 volumes. But it was also the center of four different cults. It rivaled Ephesus in the number of idols that was worshipped there. The chief city's god was Asclepius, whose symbol was the serpent, who was considered uh, the god of healing. And people from all over the world would come to this city of Pergamum to try to be healed by this god. In the midst of this kind of environment, you can only imagine what it was like to be a Christian. One who was striving to be faithful and loyal to Almighty God. One that marched to a different beat than the rest of the culture within that city. 
It's interesting because as I look at this passage of Scripture, I come to a place where I find that it is surprising that this group of folks were as loyal to Christ as it was. And yet that's exactly what Jesus said. I think there was reason to expect this church not to be loyal. The reason is because in verse 12 it says, where Satan has its throne. It was like the, the, the hotbed of Satan's activity in so many different ways. And trying to live a, a lifestyle in that kind of city is very difficult. And almost be like saying, I'm going to go to Las Vegas and plant a church. Sin City. Las Vegas had been called for so many years. And yet, we find in Pergamum, there was so much of that kind of activity. It was a city of wealth, indulgence, and pleasure-seeking. It was the seat of the emperor worship from uh, Augustus in 29 B.C. all the way to the time of this writing of Domitian. There was Baal worship, and the writings, uh, the teachings of Baal was, was uh, taken to heart by numbers of people. Baal teachings, if you might remember, it was the willingness to take material gain at the cost of spiritual loss. And we find that Balaam, as the scripture said, led to the Israelites to idol worship and impure living. It created great difficulty. We'll talk about that a little bit more. But now we find right here in Pergamum, there was the potential of that happening or repeating itself. And then we have the uh, Nicolaeans. The Nicolaeans were believers who compromised their faith to enjoy some sinful practices of the Ephesian society. You see, sin in the flesh was no big deal, according to Nicholas. And so with that kind of environment that these believers were living in, it would not surprise so many to say, well, they're, they're just slowly being absorbed by the culture. But that wasn't the case. Jesus said, you are loyal to me. In spite of their their uh, position in this community. In verse 13, the last part, Jesus said, Yet you remain true to my name. They called him, their, themselves by his name. They called themselves Christians. They wore proudly in the midst of a pagan, secular society. That term, remain true, it has some very interesting meanings. It, it means to solidly stand firm and declare oneself for Christ even in the midst of opposition, terrible opposition. It's like looking at somebody in the eye saying, listen, I am a believer regardless. And I think back to Columbine in April of 1999, where one of those who were killed that day was asked a very simple question with a gun, pointed at her head, are you a Christian? And she said, yes. And she was killed. Looking in the eye and declaring, I am a Christian. I'm not afraid. That's what that term, remain true, means. It also means to hold true to your character, that which you are inside. Sometimes we portray things that we really aren't. Those are the wishy-washy folks. The folks that are with you in this area, but when somebody says something against you, they're over here in this area as long as you're not there. They go back and forth, back and forth. That's not appropriate character. True character means, you know what, I believe this, I'm going to stand by this regardless, whether it's popular or whether it's not popular. It's to hold fast to the Lord Jesus Christ. It meant persecution, 
in the midst of their loyalty. And these Christians were commended because of their loyalty. We find also that they refused to deny their faith. As you go on into verse 13, he says, You did not renounce your faith in me. They denounced Lord Caesar and held true to the Lord Jesus Christ. Their faith is referenced here. It talks about the entire scope of their religion, their beliefs, their belief system, their belief that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, their belief that Jesus was sinless, born of the Virgin Mary, their belief that Jesus lived his life sinlessly, that he taught according not only to moral code, but upon God's divine directive, and that he was put upon the cross as a sinless man, and he died on the cross for all of their sins, all of humanity, and they put him in the tomb, and three days later, God raised him from the dead. And he ascended to heaven, and one of these days, he's coming back yet again. That is what they were holding true to their faith. That's why they could stand and look at persecution in the eye and say, it's okay, whatever time frame I have in this life, it is fine, because eternity is far greater. Loyalty meant great danger and persecution because they stood firm on Christ's supremacy above all other little g gods. Antipas is mentioned here. Antipas was a faithful witness in the church of Pergamum, and he was martyred for his faith. Many were being burned at the stake or thrown to the lions because they did not compromise. They were commended for this. Again, they were commended for being loyal and dying for their loyalty. Sometimes we might take a step back, as I spoke last week, that we might try to figure out a ways to compromise and to just all get along so that we could live longer so that at some point we might be able to communicate Christ. But then people look at us as not loyal. If we're not going to stand firm, we're not going to stand straight and look at persecution and danger in the eye and say, listen, I am a believer in Jesus Christ and I will not bat an eye about that. They were commended for it. And let me tell you, God commends us for that same type of attitude. In the midst of their strength and their courage and their faith and their willingness to stand firm, remain true, and not renounce Christ, we find that Jesus found something wrong with Pergamum. He said that they allowed the followers of Baal to stay in the church. He said, you have people there who hold to the teachings of Balaam. Isn't that interesting? Balaam, if you might remember, saw something very interesting. He saw how he could take something of great spiritual value and turn it for material gain. It didn't seem that way at the first. Not all church membership was as loyal in Pergamum as the group was commended for. There were some that held to the teachings of Balaam that were inappropriate. These teachings came out of Numbers chapters 23 and 24. Balaam was willing to make material gain at the cost of spiritual loss in his conversation and his actions concerning King Balak. He led the way to the Israelites for idol worship and for impure living. 
The combination of sexual sin and idolatry, as it turns out, it was Balaam's idea. If you go back to Numbers chapter 31 and verse 16, you also see here in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14, the same Balaam who had just blessed Israel, who appeared to be on their side, was actually deceiving them and leading them astray. It's easy to see how the Israelites were misled. Because Balaam seemed to say and do all the right things, at least for a period of time, as you reflect back on Numbers 22 through 24. Not until Balaam had inflicted great damage upon the Israelites did they realize that he was greedy, he used sorcery, and he was deeply involved in pagan religious practices. It's hard to understand sometimes how someone with that kind of evil spirit in them, misguided, intentionally leading people astray. And people who are followers of Christ, who should have some kind of spiritual discernment, are easily led astray by someone who seems to talk the talk and walk the walk, but their spirit, their character inside is not what it ought to be. But that's what happened to the Israelites. There were some in Pergamum that were doing the exact same thing. They were willing to make spiritual compromise in order to further their material safety. They advised idol worship, emperor worship, as a means of safety. They said, oh, it's okay to, to go ahead and kneel down to the emperor because we know it's not true, it's, it's not any hard whatsoever, but at least it will show that we're trying to get along. They even taught living as a means of uh, evil living, living as a means of a way to escape persecution and try to be friends with the people in their community. They thought living like the people in their community would allow them to draw it in, that they could get into the inside and they would become friends, and then maybe at some point they might bring up Christ. Never says that in the scripture, but that's exactly what happens to the folks that follow Balaam. They were hoping to escape persecution because if they made friends with their neighbors who hated Christians, maybe when the time came, their friends would step up and say, wait a second, let's keep this one alive. The classic phrase held true, wrong creed, wrong conduct. This has been true in the church history, and it's true today too, that sometimes there are wolves in the midst of the sheep, and sometimes there are sheep that just aren't strong, and the sheep that aren't strong are trying to find some way to just get along and everybody to be happy. We ought to be just one big happy family in our community. And so let's not live our Christian faith outwardly. Let's just try to somehow cover it up. But we know in our heart that we have true faith. And that's not what Jesus says true faith is. That's, that's what he was having an issue with with some in the church at Pergamum. He says, you're allowing these people that are following Balaam to actually stay and teach in your church. Also, Jesus said they allowed the Nicolaitans 
to have a place at the table. As we focused in the church at Ephesus, there was a major problem there. Here in Pergamum, there was that same kind of issue. But in contrast to the Ephesians who were commended for hating the practices of the Nicolaitans at Pergamum, they espoused their teachings and the practices of Nicholas. Far greater harm and damage than the church at Ephesus. Pergamum had said to the Nicolaitans, listen, it's okay. You just teach what you're teaching, and it's all going to be all right. I, I don't understand, frankly, how they could be commended for remaining true to their faith, standing up to the opposition and allowing heresy to be taught in their church. You remember Nicholas was a proselyte of Antioch who had been appointed a teacher to relieve the apostles from their work. Nicholas had adopted and was teaching the doctrine that since a believer in Jesus Christ, a Christian was saved eternally, freed by Christ, he could and should practice immorality. Immorality meaning open immorality, or are we looking at our day, watching pornography is immorality. God said, this is what I have against you. You have two different teachings that were heresy that the church allowed. God warned them against being over-tolerant of such sin. Jesus said, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There is such imagery in this verse. He demanded that they take steps immediately to eliminate these sins and the tolerance of them, or he would come quickly and he'd make war with them. Can you imagine Jesus coming and making war with the congregation? Well, because this is a spiritual battle that takes place, there are many churches across this nation that that war is continuing right now because we have compromised more and more and more. There wasn't an idea of saying, well, let's just work on this problem. We'll put a committee together. We'll, we'll work through the... He said, repent. That idea of repentance as a congregation is to say, wait a second, wake up. Wake up to this heresy. And not only do you wake up to it, but you do something about it. To repent means I acknowledge it's wrong. I'm going to go completely the other direction. <clears throat> So he's saying, immediately I want you to eliminate these sins and the tolerance of them. Do not tolerate them. Otherwise, I'm coming quickly. And you won't know what hits you. I wonder why there's so many churches that are dead, that aren't growing, that really aren't doing ministry across our nation. Why we're not making an impact to the United States. Rather, we're seeing the reverse take place is because we have tolerated so many things for so long. And I believe that God is making war with us. Spiritual battles taking place until we stand firm. And that's not easy. Conversations of confrontation are not easy at all. It is war. 
Because you have people that have feelings and people that have deeply held convictions and you have people that have friends and the list goes on and on of trying to deal with those kinds of things. But Jesus said, listen, I want a pure church. The idea is to get rid of sin and save the sinner if possible. Address it. Speak to it. If it speaks to the heart, then you've won a brother. If it doesn't, well, he says, I want purity. The sword of his mouth is his judgment of sin. He leaves no doubt as to his ability to handle the situation that had developed. He said, I will come, I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And Then he says, toward the end of this passage, he who has ear to hear, let him hear. So, here we have Jesus that has commended the saints at Pergamum. He's commended them because they have stood firm. They've remained true. They have not renounced Jesus in the midst of danger and persecution of a highly focused city with cultic worship that was Satan's throne. And they stood firm anyway. But then he comes and says, you've remained true, but you've allowed some of these teachings to get into your church. And I have this against you. Clean, up, clean it up. Clean it up. Or I'm coming. As we get to the end, we find that Christ promised a special reward to the faithful. He says, to him who overcomes, I will give some hidden manna. I don't know, you probably remember well, but when I was a kid, it was my joy to sit on the back porch on top of an ice cream maker with ice there and crank that thing what seemed to be ours. Why would I sit there in the sun and do that and do that because I knew at the end of the day that was going to be the best vanilla ice cream I would ever have. It was worth it. And so we overcame the heat and the pure exhaustion of your arm falling off because you were cranking it because you knew it was going to be okay. And that's what he's saying here. He says, to him who overcomes, I will give some hidden manna. He promised his personal fellowship. That term hidden manna suggests the spiritual nourishment that the faithful believers would have. They would be empowered and fed spiritually. That would make all the difference in their lives. And as the Israelites traveled toward the promised land, God provided the manna every single day from heaven for their physical nourishment. Remember that in Exodus chapters 16. We also remember in the New Testament that Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He's saying, I'm here to provide the spiritual nourishment that satisfies the deeper hunger, that intimacy that I want with you and that you can have. And so, when he talks about that to him who overcomes, to him who, who stands and remains true, who stands in the church and says, these teachings are not of Scripture, they're not of God. I've got some hidden manna 
something that you don't even know about, something you can't even describe, and I'm going to give that to you, that incredible personal relationship and fellowship. You see, it's a heavenly quality that the world cannot know. It's a God fellowship. It is a God power that he gives us. It's not something we could think about, manufacture ourselves. But he says, I'm offering it to you. For those of you who will overcome. He also promised a complete vindication of life. He says, I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Pergamum was engaged in the mining of white stone as a commercial product. And the use of, that, uh, of a piece of that stone with its, somebody's name on it or an event on it had lots of varied uses throughout the empire. It was given to a person who had been tried in court of law and acquitted. You had your acquittal stone. <laughs> it was given to a person who was freed from slavery. I'm a free man. It was presented to the winner of athletic events. You are the winner. It was presented to a warrior who is returning from a great victory. It was worn at times as a charm. It also is related to the stones on the breastplate of the high priest. Those special stones. It's possible that the white stone was a symbol of divine protection since a person's name in this environment, in Rome and in Pergamum and specifically, the calling of one's name who was a believer in Jesus Christ very possibly meant you were being summoned to death. However, the new name may also refer to the redeemed character. So according to the Old Testament usage, when a person had a change of character... He was given a new name. For example, out of Genesis 32, 28, Jacob was given the name of Israel. When a person who had a pagan life became a new believer in Jesus Christ, they were given a new life, an eternal life. It changed forever because the character was changed. And so Jesus is saying, listen, I think, that you're going to get that white stone because you've overcome. It's going to have a new name on it because now you are a follower of Jesus. You have remained true. You have not renounced me. You've stood firm on the doctrines and the teachings of the Bible. And you've looked at danger and persecution in the eye. And you've said, I am a proud believer in Christ. The stones are significant because each will bear the new name of every person who believes in Jesus Christ. They are evidence that a person has been accepted by God and declared worthy to receive eternal life. The names written in the Lamb's book of life. A person's name represented his or her character and God wants to give us new names and new hearts because of our character change because of Jesus. So as we look at the church at Pergamum, we find that God's message expressed his appreciation for his people's loyalty, but it warns against sin and immorality, compromise and the tolerance of evil. It promises punishment and judgment for those who will not repent, 
but it rewards those who do repent with divine protection, with spiritual nourishment and growth. You see, it entitles those who commit themselves to Jesus as Savior and Lord to have a new heart and a new name. And today I'm asking you if you have that new name. Have you been given that white stone? Symbolically, obviously. Jesus is what he's talking about as well. Are you an overcomer? Are you one that remains true and loyal to him? Well, let me tell you, as a member of this body of Christ, as a person who is a follower of Jesus Christ, you have that stone because your name's written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The question that you have to ask yourself is, is am I living the way that he wants me to? Am I true and loyal the way he desires me to be? Am I giving everything I possibly can to him for his glory? And am I willing to stand above the noisy crowd who is against my faith and be proud that I am a follower of Jesus? If there are some questions about that, today would be a great time of rededication or recommitment to the Lord. You can do that right in the living room where you are, and I'd encourage you to do that. And for those of you that do not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, I'm asking you if you would, choose to embrace Christ. Choose to give your life to Him. I've already communicated in this message what Jesus has done for us today. What you need to do is reach out and say, Jesus, I want you into my life. I want you to give me a life everlasting. And He promises without a doubt to do that. And when He does that, and He comes into your life, when you ask Him to take away your sin and come in and live forever, is he's going to take all the sin away. He's going to write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. You're going to have life everlasting and God's Spirit inside of you forever. Would you choose to do that today? Please, make those decisions as we pray. Father, thank you for the time that we've had this morning. And I pray with all of my heart that whatever decision needs to be made, that, Father, in the individual lives and as this body of Christ, that we will make them. Help us to be cognizant of the sin in our life, of any sin within our church family, that, Father, we need to stop immediately. Because we don't want your wrath or to be at war with you because you're the one that gives life. You're the one that gives that inner peace and joy. And I pray whatever it takes this morning that, God, we would make that decision to give you first place in our life it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.